Cinema St. Louis's The Lens is now the takeup.com, a place to gather after the film is over. I'm your host, Joshua Ray, and fear not, all your favorite episodes of The Lens featuring all your favorite guests are still here in your feed, just a little refocused. Stay subscribed to us here for future episodes, and you can follow along for new ones and more at the Takeup STL. Thank you for joining us on The Lens, a Cinema St. Louis podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Ray, Cinema St. Louis programmer and critic. I am joined by my co-host, Andrew Wyatt, programmer and managing editor of The Lens. Andrew. Hello. And we've got Kayla McCullough, programmer, social media manager for Cinema St. Louis and critic for The Lens. Hey, Kayla. Hello. Well, you can find all of our words at The Lens on cinemastlouis.org here. Every other week, we will focus on one underloved or underseen film. First, we're going to talk about what's now showing. Then we'll get into The Lens with Greg Araki's The Living End. Finally, we're going to end with a game and figure out what everyone is known for. All right, Kayla and Andrew, we are on to a, a new mini-series. I can't believe we demolished the films of 2021 to never speak about them again. And we're on <laughs> to the queer 90s. Uh, before we get into all that, let's do now showing. Let's talk about some new releases, some events around town. Kayla, you just published a review up on the lens of Windfall, a film I had heard absolutely nothing about. But it has like some cool people and cool lineage to it. It's about a man who breaks into a rich tech man's vacation home and he suspects that it's empty. But while he's in there, um, the man and his wife come home and he holds them hostage and pretty much just wants money. But in order to do that, they have to wait a certain amount of time. And while they're all, while they're being held hostage, they're talking about wealth and relationships, and it's just increasingly more tense. That stars Jason Siegel, Jesse Plemons, and they all play certain roles that I haven't ever seen them in before. So it was kind of nice to see like a fresh role for them. I liked yeah. what you said in your review about how like comparing this favorably to Malcolm and Marie and that it it's sort of a put a, a handful of actors in a room and sort of just let the let things simmer and boil. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about it's a more you said it was a more successful version of that than Malcolm and Marie. How's Jason Siegel in it? He hasn't been around for a long time. Yeah, like. he hasn't. He's playing a character that he's I don't think I've ever seen him play and I I love him. So I pretty much watch everything that he's in. Plemons is playing like a Jeff Bezos type character. Just ultra rich white man and has all the money and the power in the world. And that folds in this time where they're just talking about everything while he is holding them hostage. You could definitely tell that this was a movie that was made um, throughout COVID because <laughs> it was just all in this house. I think we're 
going to be in a, a glut of one setting films and films with like four characters for a little bit. Uh, we might have already kind of gone through them now that things are, you know, opening up. Um, but, you know, like Hitchcock, he he loved the logistical challenge of it. And I yeah. think it'll, it'll, you know, I'd rather us not go through this, but it is an interesting challenge for filmmakers. Windfall is on Netflix, right? Netflix, yep. Okay. And Deep Water is on Hulu. This is Adrian Lang. <laughs> like yeah, th- when I said that, did your heart tense a little bit? Like, oh God, what's no? It's just, it? like this. This film is like arrived memeable. It's oof. oh, you don't even know. Like, I-, I think I'm the only one who's seen it, right? Right. Yeah. So you two um, have an assignment after this. You have to watch this thing. First of all, I-, I think it's better than what a lot of people are giving it credit for than the reputation. It's gotten thus far. I think it is sort of a satire on the thing. Adrian Lyne is the director. His last film was Unfaithful. This is someone who's like the master of the 80s and 90s erotic thriller. Talking about Nine and a Half Weeks, Fatal Attraction. I mean, the the low decent proposal. Decent proposal, like the most supreme Hollywood expensive trash. And I say that lovingly because I think he's up to some of the same ideas here. Affleck plays a a retired um, warfare engineer. And this is a point of contention between him and his wife, Ana de Armas, the horniest person <laughs> in the world. Like, this should be called the horniest person in the world. And she just likes to make a mess of everything and and play these sexual games with her husband, Ben Affleck. And they are in over their heads with each other. Maybe he's killed someone that she used to sleep with. Maybe not. This isn't a spoiler. This is like the first 10 minutes. And I have to say that Adrian Lyne is, I think, still satirizing the kind of white bourgeoisie and their lack of awareness in anything else in the world besides themselves. It does not feel engineered to be a camp classic, but let me tell you, there are lines in this that I want to meme. It feels like it's all very born from these characters, and uh, Ben Affleck is never better when he's just like a seething, mopey, terrible husband like in Gone Girl. It was originally two and a half hours. You can tell that they cut a half hour out of it. And ask how long it was because I saw that two and a half hour original runtime. I I wish that it were still two and a half hours. Um there's a major criticism everyone has about the ending being very choppy and it lacking an ending. I did not feel that way. I felt like it had purpose and that was the ending that was intended. And it was with this purpose of being a satire. And the movie is very hilarious. And sometimes maybe not intentionally, but filmmaker intent to the wind. I had a a good time with it. And I think everyone's sort of unfairly and unjustly maligning it. Uh, But we should talk about maybe some better thrillers, horror movies. Andrew, you saw a couple 
of Sundance Horror Breakouts. Fresh is on Hulu. Master is on Amazon. I think of the two, I preferred Fresh slightly. They're neither what I would call sort of really excellent horror films. They're both have that sort of low budget streaming horror feel to them, even though they sort of premiered itself at uh, Sundance. But um, they both have some interesting things going on. Um, I think of the two, Fresh is a little better. It's, um, I, I don't know if I can even talk about it without spoiling like the big twist in it that happens at the end of the first act. Um, but Daisy Edgar Jones plays a sort of woman in her 30s burnt out on the dating scene using dating apps and so forth. Um, and until she runs into a guy at the grocery store, the traditional way that's played by Sebastian Stan and sort of charming, charming guy mood. Um, and they hit it off and she thinks it's going to come to something and it turns into something very, very different than she thought it was going to be. I've seen some criticisms of the film that sort of say that it's a sort of one note allegory and that it doesn't really do anything with that allegory. Um, I don't disagree, but I do think it works really well as a straight survival horror film like it doesn't need to be a deep film it's just it's a sort of i was genuinely like nerve-wracked about what the heck was going to happen and how she was going to get out of the situation so i think just as that it works but yeah the, the sort of metaphorical aspects of it are maybe aren't as deep as the filmmaker think it is but it's it's well done for what it is directed by mimi cave master is a little bit trickier i think i think it's a more ambitious film Directed by um, Mariama Diallo, um, starring starring Regina Hall and uh, Zoe Renee, sort of a um, university horror thing where Regina Hall is the first what's called a housemaster at this, which is sort of a live-in faculty, prestigious live-in faculty position at this exclusive New England university that's like 300 years old. And Zoe Renee plays one of the few black undergraduates who's been, who's coming in as a freshman. And there's all these stories about that her dorm room is haunted. And that there's a, like a witch who is burned or hanged on the property. It's kind of like a legendary reputation, but it's also kind of a social race horror film about like microaggression and intimidation and racism on campus. It's more ambitious. I don't think it really comes together. Like, First of all, they're split. They split the protagonist between this professor and an undergraduate student. And it kind of scatters the film's attention a little bit. Doesn't ever really amount to anything. There are some effective scenes and scares in it, but I felt like, I don't know, it felt a little too loose. And at the end, it just kind of peters out. It doesn't really resolve. So like the, kind of was expecting it to sort of build to a gonzo crazy reveal and nothing really, it doesn't really do anything like that. No new Candyman ending where your jaws on the floor. Like, are they really doing this? <laughs> yeah, nothing like that. It's it, it it's a film that has more on its mind than it knows what to do with. If that makes sense, mm. like it, it it it's doing a lot of it's trying to do a lot of things in terms of this socially conscious horror, but it never really resolves them to anything great. The performances are fine. Regina Hall and Zayn are both really good at it and very credible. Um, playing almost against sort of cartoon more cartoonish antagonist characters. Um, but they are, they're sort of pretty consistently credible in uh, sympathetic in the film, but it just didn't quite come together. I think if you're going to watch the one or the two fresh is the better, just in terms of, I want to watch a terrifying movie about a woman in a terrifying situation and trying to get out. How is she going to get out of it? And sort of using her, her smarts and her cunning to get out of it. 
Very cool. Well, if you're looking to leave the house, Wash U has the 16th annual African Film Festival starting March 25th, uh, running through that Sunday, the 27th. Andrew, you reviewed at the lens of one of the films that will be shown. Yeah, um, I actually did not know this when I decided to review it. I, I reviewed it because I saw it on Mubi. It was really taken by it. And I thought I wanted to bring some wider attention to it. The film is Lingui, the Sacred Bonds. I'm, I'm excited that it's playing on, in, a, in a sort of theatrical venue. This is um, a new film by the Chadian filmmaker, Mohamed Saleh Haroun, who I guess, you know, if there is only one acclaimed, internationally acclaimed Chadian filmmaker, it's probably Haroun. But he's the director of um, several notable sort of international breakout films, including Durat and uh, A Screaming Man, which won the jury prize, which effectively third place at the Cannes Film Festival about 12 years ago. And his new film was really good. I liked it a lot. It's essentially an abortion drama. It's about um, a woman, Amina, single mom in the capital city of Chad, who is, uh, has a 15-year-old daughter who becomes pregnant, won't tell her who the father is. It's expelled from school as a result. And how these two, she's initially sort of mad at her daughter, but then they sort of together resolve to find a way to secure this abortion. And it's in some ways, it's plays almost like a low-key thriller after a while um, about how, how in a country where abortion is illegal and religiously frowned upon, how do, how do you go about terminating pregnancy? Harun has a habit of making films that initially feel like sort of social realist dramas and had take sort of noirish turns eventually, which I think is really cool. He definitely has some French New Wave influences in his style. Um, and it just ends up, weirdly, I think it ends up being like the warmest film he's ever made in some ways, because all his films have sort of a nasty caustic side, or at least sort of dismal side eventually. And this one ends up being, even though it's about sort of a serious topic, and it's very grounded in sort of social realism. It ends up being a film very much about like the strength of women, particularly strength of women in societies where they have to sort of scrabble to get everything that they can. Um, so very excellent. If you know, I haven't, I don't know any of the, I don't know the other films that are playing at African Film Festival, but I can definitely recommend this one. Well, it's going to be going all weekend over there. And there's plenty to choose from, but that one is Saturday night at 7 p.m. and it's all in Brown Hall at Wash U. And after you watch it, you can head over to cinemastlouis.org and read your review and listen to this podcast again. Why not? And um, I should say, I should say that my review is not doesn't have spoilers, so you could definitely read it beforehand if you want to get a better sense for what it's about. Perfect. Well, let's get into some spoilers and talk about our first queer '90s film. That's Greg Araki's. The Living End. Which would you rather die for? The sex or love? So what's your name? The sexy slab of buff beefcake. Luke! Stop it, Daisy. You just want to play hide the weenie with him and you know it. Where's the party, animal? Fifteen left. The test only verifies that you have the antibodies to the virus. We've come to the lens portion of the podcast where we focus on one underloved or underseen film. We do it in a set of mini series. First one we had was films of 2021. And now we're on to queer 90s. Right? Uh, I won't do that. I won't. I won't do it all. Cowabunga queer 90s. No, no one likes it. Whatever. Andrew kind of mm -hmm. likes it. 
Um, there is a TMNT. There is a TMNT reference in this movie. <laughs> yes, there is absolutely. I want to give our audience context. The reason we're moving into this specific miniseries is Cinema St. Louis's micro festival, Q Fest St. Louis. Now in its fifteenth edition, we're celebrating the new queer cinema movement. As E. Ruby Rich, the great critic. And great queer theorist herself termed in 1992. We're going to be highlighting Todd Haynes' Poison, uh, one of the key films of the movement. So in conjunction, we are doing a queer 90s miniseries, sometimes related to new queer cinema, sometimes, you know, spiraling outward from the movement. So we've got a lot to talk about over the next four episodes. Um, each of us has a pick, and we will have a guest bringing a pick, too. I will say a, a friend of ours and an authority, Kate Lore, adjunct professor at Webster University and contributor to The Lens. Cinema St. Louis fans will be familiar with her. She's going to be joining us in a couple episodes. But first up, we have Andrew's pick. That is the 1992 film. Greg Araki's The Living End. And I want to know why Andrew picked this, but I feel like it's probably because it's about a film critic in their own personal <laughs> apocalypse. Is that true? <laughs> no, it's not. I actually went into this film sight unseen. I know okay. that so, some, some of our films that we're picking for the show are films that we personally love and we want to expose the other, uh, the other guests to. But um, in this case, this was a film that I had never seen before, and it was sort of a hole in my cinematic literacy, and I wanted to fill it. Greg Araki is a filmmaker who I've seen some of his films before. I've seen Mysterious Skin, which I think is sort of his probably most well-known well film. Doom Generation, which is sort of a touchstone for a lot of late Gen Xers, early millennials. And his stoner comedy, Smiley Face, which is an early in a Ferris film. But I'd never seen this one, which is sort of held out as sort of his early, his early film that sort of put him on the map as, as someone to watch. Um, so I picked it kind of, kind of going in, not knowing what to expect myself. Very cool. Kayla, what's your history with Greg Araki and or The Living End? I'm familiar, but this was the first thing I had ever seen by him. That is incredible. Well, like most everyone at the time right this is the this is actually yeah. his third film i will say that i am very familiar with gregoraki he was seminal while i was finding my cinephilia and also my queer identity so of course as a a, a little gay boy i loved these films because they are so transgressive and have these portraits of queer life and queer people who are sort of um, unabashedly queer and unabashedly themselves. And even though they're sort of at the extreme end of that in content and filmmaking, very inspiring just for a, just a little boy in, in rural Missouri to see people behaving this way. I would say that like to go to go back to your original comment that like as soon as I was watching it and I find out that John is a film critic. I'm like, oh, okay. Like this is <laughs> dialed specifically into our interests here. Whatever else happens in this movie, I know that like we have a film, like down and out film critic who can barely make a living sort of <laughs> grousing about the state of cinema in generally like, ooh, okay, we're going to respond to this in some way. 
and he is a non-working film critic, but he's working on a piece on the end of cinema. You could say that's sort of a quote from Godard's Weekend that mm -hmm. ends with the, the greatest ending ever, which is Fong du Cinema. So this film is expressly informed by that early French New Wave, specifically Godard and his yeah. sort of galaxy brain of film and literature. It's also inspired by, or it takes on the form of a very a traditional noir narrative. I was going to say, it reminded me a lot of Breathless in that way with like the crime spree and then when they're on the run and the unique style. And there's even a Godard poster up like in the room. Uh, yeah, made in USA. Yeah, a lot of the uh, interior shots. So I think that that's totally intentional. You could spend a lot of time just sort of squeeing over the production design and all the references that Eric Araki works into, like everything from the clothing to the thing posters that are hanging on the wall and the billboards like there's there's all kinds of interesting things going on there as well as some like direct quotations from specific films as we mentioned and the music of the time uh it's it's a very sort of hipsters film because of all of these references but i shouldn't it, it, i don't mean that in a derogatory sense at all because there's you know luke is wearing at one point a jesus and mary chain that the film itself gets its title from a Jesus and Mary Jane song. It's from Psycho Candy, which is their most well-known album. And it's a very fuzzed out sort of 60s, early garage band sounding song that is sort of has a pop structure. And I think that is interesting because that's what this film is too. It has this pop structure, but it is completely through a modern lens. And this is a, a, a lot of what new queer cinema was up to. It's like, let's look at our existing forms and let's queer these spaces and let's share our stories through this. Some critics have thought that was sort of detrimental to the movement in like an erasure of the now and too much of reverence for the past. But I feel like this film is imbued with such anger, danger, and just extreme emotion about the state of queer life that any sort of reverence for the past is only just sort of repurposed in a very special way. There obviously is that anger there, but it also just feels like exhaustion. Like the tiredness of like the inaction, like that no one is like, you know, helping them or the world at large. I have a quote underlined here in my notes that when John first picks Luke up and asks, where do you want to go? He, his response is off this fucking insane planet. You say that like that anger, because that's like something I picked up on as well, because I don't think of this as an like having watched it now, I think the logline conveyed to me that it was an HIV film. It's an AIDS film. It's not in the sense that it's not a film where the, it's not a film where the HIV drives the plot in some overt way, the way it does with a more, maybe a more 
sentimental AIDS drama, but the sense of how the epidemic changed the psychology and the social reality for gay people at the time, like it becomes the driving engine of everything in the moon. It's what's pushing Luke and John out the door on the road with each other. It's pushing all the self-destructive things that they do and the sense of flailing, not sure where they fit in in the world. The, the, the anger about the AIDS epidemic and the inaction. There's a great line about George Bush. You know, Luke speculates that they should drive all the way to Washington, D.C. and inject George Bush with their blood, which is just like a, it's a you know very nihilistic punk sentiment, but something that feels completely appropriate coming out of Luke's mouth when he says it. And it feels earned. And that, I feel like, has to, when you get that death sentence, which at the time it was, it, things are very different now. Uh, it is not a death sentence. It, it should never have been stigmatized and should never be stigmatized now. Yep. And, but at the time, this is for these two people, once they're told that, that's it. And that's why it's called the living in. They're living in this purgatory space that Kayla was talking about. You talked about some of the reverence for the past. In addition to sort of older structures, noir structures and tropes. There's also like this very 80s LA feel to the film, even though it's mm. made in 1992. He's very much looking back at like the LA films of the 1980s and forming some of his some of his choices. Um, there's a lot of Repo Man in this film, I think. The beer can. Did you notice that? Right. The, well, also, the beer can. Well, also the line, I blame society. The, right. the spray paints on the wall. Yeah. That's, from, that's a quote from Repo Man. I don't think Luke is spray painting it as a quote from Repo Man, he's expressing his own feeling in that graffiti more, more so than he is quoting Repo Man. But yeah. there's also just a general sense of slightly off-kilterness or nightmarishness that it's, this is not a post-apocalyptic film. This is not a post-near-future film in any stretch, but it has that Repo Man quality of being a slightly surreal space. The film opens on a title that is an irresponsible film by Greg Araki. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and we should have framed it this way before we even started talking about it, because to your point, it is inheriting a lot of sort of queer filmmakers. And again, new queer cinema, you're sort of saying, you know, we're being reverential for these things and sometimes referential to Alex Cox's, the, you know, Repo Man does seem to find its way in there. But it's also a very cheaply made film. It was made for $20,000. And it speaks to Iraqi's cinematic senses that mm -hmm. it, it doesn't necessarily look $20,000 cheap. It looks cheap. And the, film, and the filmmaking is very clearly done on a budget. But he has a sense of, in every frame, the apocalyptic. Um, and, and it is a personal apocalypse for the, the image of the film, which finds its way onto a, a DVD cover and posters eventually, is, is the two of them, John and Luke, just facing off as they're laying on top of each other. And so there's sexual tension but with them, but it's also sort of a, a romantic like they find this bond together that I found incredibly touching. I'd seen this before, uh, but as a teen, like I'm just looking for like, whoa, there's, there's gay sex and whoa, there's violence and whoa, it's like, you know, 
Godard and Andy Warhol and a bit of John Waters and all of these things that I'm loving and it's just synthesizing. But this time I was, I was moved by the experience of these people. And it, while it isn't necessarily about the body in a sense of the effects of HIV, it's a, about what you were talking about, Andrew, the psychological effects of this epidemic. That romantic element is there. I think if you, that irresp irresponsible film came back to me when I was thinking about like, could you, the question that everybody asks with, you know, any film older than 10 years now is, could you make this film today? I think in some ways, like the, if a queer filmmaker made this movie with this plot today, like they might receive some criticism for how the romantic relationship is portrayed, that there would be intimations that the dynamic is toxic and horrible and that the film is somehow lionizing it. But I also think like the part that jumped out to me is the softer, even though there are like some crazy toxic highs in this film in terms of how the relationship bounces the back and forth so fast between love and hate, you know? But there's also some like incredibly soft, sensitive moments. I love the like, sort of the way that disarming way that Luke just sort of blurts out that, you know, how much he how much he loves John, like even after only spending a few days with him, that he's completely swept. He's been even though Luke has the more aggressive dynamic, uh, more aggressive personality, he admits to John just bluntly that, you know, you've totally like got my heart. You've totally captured my love now. And I forget the exact wording he used, uses, but John also being like this self-loathing character in so many ways, not just as a gay man, not just as an HIV positive man, but just as, as, a, as a poor film critic and as a general person, like he, He's so self-loathing when Luke sort of bluntly expresses his love to him after only a day or two. Like John's just just flat out doesn't believe him. He thinks he's pulling his leg. Right. Because and he, because his self-loathing is so intense. John's already expressed that why he says to his friend Darcy, um, why do I always pick the the bad ones? <laughs> right. The trouble. It's like Charlie XCX, but I always let the good ones go. Yep. While I don't know that Aki is really concerned with the romantic nature of it, I think he is sort of picking those things up from Bonnie and Clyde uh, or Breathless. Right. Uh, they live by night to go even earlier. Uh, it's to me more of the sort of like found families that queer people have to make and the connections that we have to make because of our ostracization. Well, that's sort of a framework for all queer theory is that, you know, we can only look at ourselves through the impositions that others have upon us. And I think that's an interesting framework to think about this film too, and in what the guerrilla filmmaking that he's inheriting and its reverence for the past, but the sort of explosive emotional and, and psychological eruption of what's happened to these people in getting their death sentence and sort of living through it again it is not concerned about the body and the effects of hiv in that way and it has been criticized for that as it sort of just using that for punk measures but well, I john, john has the sick cough at one point yeah <laughs> the movie sick cough. yeah he does have a very camille sick cough um, towards the end and it's sort of just <laughs> It's silly, but, but there, there is a sublime, I do think there's like almost a sublime line that Luke has that I love where he talks about after he cuts himself, 
yeah in this this act of like self-harm near the end of the film um luke says something like you'd think that something so powerful like i'd be able to see it but my blood just looks like blood like he's he's ruminating in his own a non-scientific way about like you know the profundity of this invisible thing this invisible ball of proteins floating around in his blood being the thing that's going to kill him i think it's going to kill so many men it's a it's a nice moment like I, you're right in that it's not a film about physical degeneration so much but i do like it has these moments of of recognition about that about the sur the surreal nature of the whole the whole thing like this is a movie that's difficult to like <laughs> you know I, I if you're especially if you're not familiar with iraqi at all or sort of don't respond i don't know Kayla, I can't get a sense. This is me leading up, a big lead up to say, Kayla, did you like this or not? Yeah, I mean, I think if we want to talk about the cinematography, I think it was shot mm. beautifully. I went to see who was the cinematographer and I didn't know that it was that it was him, um, that it was actually Greg. Um, the shot compositions, the glow of the sun, the colors, like it looks excellent, even in spite of how like little it costs to shoot. Um, but that's the glory of actually, you know, using real film. I watched it on Criterion and I will say like it was really, really, really nice because it was, you know, just like top quality where like, like I looked up the trailer and I was like, it wasn't it. Like the restoration on Criterion is obviously so much more top tier than anything else. I have the Strand releasing DVD and it's it's solid enough. I don't know what year it came out. It might be a little older, but now, okay, good. here's where we get into something that's confusing and I'm not finding a lot of uh, facts about. Do you have the DVD that's labeled as remixed and remastered? It's labeled as remixed and remastered. I don't know. I believe he did it in 2009. So this is after the first time I saw it. Like Netflix used to be such a haven for cinephiles and especially little queer baby cinephiles like me because you could get something like The Living End on a really shitty looking DVD um, and have your mind blown. Um, but I, I, I'm just not, I believe that is also what's widely available now. Like it's supplanted any original cut, but I'm also not finding a lot of information about it. So uh, dear listeners, if you have any intel, I'm very curious, but. Um, it's not, it is not out of print. I did got it pretty cheaply. So nice. I will say you could find it on Amazon or whatever you prefer. It does include a 2008 essay or introduction by Erica Rocky and a filmmaker statement. So I, it's at least 2000 post 2008. It's uncommon for filmmakers who were sort of came through this movement to have the opportunity to do something like that. I think there are only a few who are still working and living. Todd Haynes is certainly the most high profile. And it's odd that if you would see a film like Poison and then look at his you know imdb credits that he ends up making something for amazon and has oscar nominations and things like that iraqi did not take that track but continued 
working and working in this vein for quite some time. He has a teenage apocalypse uh, trilogy. I think that's what he calls it. Of totally fucked up, nowhere, and the Doom Generation. And I probably like The Living Edge marginally more than those films. I haven't seen Nowhere in quite some time. It is unavailable because of the rights issues with the soundtrack. But then he, you know, he makes something like Splendor, which is his, he calls it his screwball comedy. Eventually he gets to something like Mysterious Skin, which is something of a level up in critical appreciation and while and getting that label of oh maturity right i mean i think that's warranted like you watch i watched uh mysterious skin recently as well and if you watch them back to back like it feels i'm not going to denigrate living in by saying it feels like a test run for mysterious skin sure. i do it, it, it and in some ways it's like the roughness of living in is essential to why it works mm. you go from that to mysterious Sin, it's like okay now he's arrived like this is this is a filmmaker who's completely in command and has the budget to do what he wants to do it's Um, elegant it's smart but it still contains the seeds of the transgressive depictions of queer life of you know the the kind of abuses these characters go through and that one specifically it's the sexual abuse to me that was that was also another seminal film and i think it's probably his best but there are iraqi purists who would argue for some of these earlier ones but then he makes something like smiley face have you seen smiley face (laughs) yes i have i actually like it yeah me too it's the ultimate stoner comedy it is like you don't have to smoke to watch it because you will feel really fucking high watching it and it's one of anna ferris's greatest performances i don't know like, how she like right before she really broke out yeah and she i mean she has to be high making that thing right because if she's not she's giving one of the great like it is supremely difficult to act fucked up on screen without being <laughs> fucked up so it, ha- it has one of my favorite like there's a seminal scene that's in every stoner film which is the how we thought it was how it really was scene where you get <laughs> How the how the how the high person thought that they were acting and how they and then we get the cut to how the five hundred days of summer cut where they actually get to see how they actually acted and it has I'm not gonna spoil it but it has probably the best version of that I've ever seen. It's it's truly incredible, but I feel like he's sort of in the wilderness. It seems like he would be primed to be working more, and he has worked since then. He had a stars TV series and a a really fun and sort of sublimely weird film that won the queer palm in 2011 um, kaboomed kaboom yeah which is a a lot of fun and sort of harken back to his origins but then he made something like white bird in a blizzard have you guys seen that no it came out like the log line of that though i was like wait what it is kind of a wait what film it's sort of uh more typical indie than anything else he's made it's got shailene woodley in it i don't remember much about it which is not really a compliment it seems like he's the type of person be primed to tap into netflix money or 
I don't know, A24 money. Like he's, he should be around. He should be working. And he's a lot older than I thought he was. For me, he's like perpetually my age right now. Um, but he's in his 60s now. But he's still, uh, you know, as transgressive as ever and interested in, in queer identity and interested in um, updating some outmoded notions that he has about queer life too. I read a really great interview with him um, on Vulture where he was talking about some of the criticisms of his early work and countering some of them, but also sort of agreeing with some of it with hindsight. But he is such a fascinating filmmaker. I'm, I was a little like amused about how closely Luke's musical taste mirrors my own in 1992. Like, <laughs> you were a Luke? I was a little straight teenage boy, but I was very much into ministry, KMFDM, Coil, <laughs> like all the stuff, all the industrial music you hear him or me do. Although I also had a, a John's eye. I also liked me some Smiths. I also liked me some Echo and, Echo and the Buddy Men. Um, but it's the t-shirts that Luke wears in this movie are pretty much the t-shirts I would have been wearing in 1992 as a sullen, I guess it would have been junior in high school. I am definitely more of a John. There's a point where they're, who are they listening to? And there's a Smith's poster in the background. And it's like, how do you double cancel an image? Because <laughs> we've got to get that. But that's such a great image where they're having this pink Barbie cereal yeah. at the Smith's. <laughs> Like it, in a can of generic beer for breakfast. Yeah, and <laughs> he's pouring the Repo Man beer in his Barbie cereal. Man, I, I was born too late. Like, <laughs> well, it's a great production design film, even as apart from everything else. Um, there's one particular shot where they're coming out of a convenience store, and it you have in one the same shot you have John and Luke, a Seven Eleven sign. A billboard in the back, an LA billboard in the background advertising a cowboy boot emporium. Mm. And in the foreground, there is inexplicably and never commented on a couple of like street corner crazies reading aloud from the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> I love it. Like all in one shot, this sort of low angle looking up. It, it's, it's very much a, so again, a timeless film in some ways, but also a time capsule film in some ways. And it, and it speaks to his filmmaking prowess that he's able to frame something like that from zero budget and what it would take for someone of, I don't know, lesser talents or different talents to be able to do something like that would take money to whereas he just knows where to put a camera. I made a note here that after a film that's, and this goes back to the music, after a film that's so invested in its soundtrack and in product placing bands and so forth, in the end, the music disappears and we're down to just the crashing waves for that last few minutes on the beach, which I think is beautiful. It is their living in their, you know, purgatorial space in which they have to exist, but they yeah. know that their, their time is limited. It, it's so deeply upsetting and, and it does, I don't, I can't ever say that I know what that must feel like, but it, it strikes true to be the end of this film yeah they're just at an impasse there's nothing there's nothing left yeah, yeah. and there's there's a little bit of a like I don't know if we, we mentioned that there's a tiny thread of post-apocalyptic 
feeling in this film. And I get that at the end, even though the end is also like the dreamiest and most abstracted part of the film, you get a little bit, I have a, like a little bit of a kiss me deadly sort of, it's the end of the world. Yeah. And, we're laying, and we're laying on the beach feeling to it. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, a great point to leave it is the apocalypse. Are you guys ready to play a game about Gregoraki? I've forgotten what game we're playing. Or did you not tell us? You're about to find out. <laughs> okay. All right. Now we're on to our living in. It's the rules of the game. And we're going to play known for, also known as the IMDb game. I have picked out three performers who starred in Gregoraki films. And what we do is we're going to quiz each other. Everyone gets a time in the spotlight. They're going to get one of the performers, and they have to guess the top four titles they're known for on their IMDb pages. Rules are we have to say if any television or voiceover work is listed, and you get two wrong guesses before we start giving hints. We haven't done this, but... I picked this up from another podcast and well, I, I played it before the podcast. I feel like it's been in the cinephile ether for a long time. So we've picked out three Gregor Araki stars. We've got Anna Ferris from Smiley Face, Joseph Gordon-Levitt from Mysterious Skin, and Shailene Woodley from White Bird and a Blizzard. I'm going to go first. I want what I think would be the hard one, maybe, with Anna Ferris, yeah, give me Anna Ferris. I'm gonna guess scary movie. Close. Which? Which one? Scary movie two. It's no. not scary movie two. Not scary movie two. Then three. No. Are you? Are you fucking kidding me? Is it scary movie four? Yeah, it's scary, it's scary movie, movie four. four? <laughs> Which one even is that? Oh wait, is that the one where with? the ring stuff in it i have no idea i've never Who seen knows? these movies they look so terrible it's, it's the one from 2006 oh my god all right well now that i've used up all those guesses you get to give me the years of the remaining three films the first one 2008 the okay. second one 2005 and the third one 2005 as well <laughs> what 2005, Anna Ferris. Well, okay. The only one that immediately comes to mind is Just Friends. Yes. What? <laughs> yes. That was Just... the tough one. And that's uh, with uh, Ryan Reynolds, right? Where yep. he's in a fat suit, she's in a fat Someone's in a fat suit in that at he some is. point. Wow. I worked at Blockbuster then, so that's the only reason I know that. So there must be another 2005 Please tell me there are no more scary movies. Yeah. No, 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 no more, more scary, scary movies. movies. Okay. The 2008 one. All right. I need more hints. I've seen this a lot. So I'm trying to think of how to explain it. Um, it's kind of like Mean Girls meets Legally Blonde. The House Bunny. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. That's her 
her best performance, yeah. right? Yeah. House Bunny. That, well, and maybe smiley face. And well, that's what I was, when you were talking about that. I was like, all I could, my mind just went to this. Wait, it feels like that was her first like lead role, right? It was certainly like it, a okay, breakout. Her first, her first studio lead role. Right. Yeah. Okay. I think you're right. Well, other than scary movie. Um. Okay. Is wait. Is 2008 Miley Face? No, 2008 is the House Bunny. Oh, 2008's the House Bunny. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you have okay. one more from 2015. Okay. Or 2005. 2005. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Give me a clue on the 2005s. Didn't know she was in this. <laughs> Andrew, you look so excited about. This no, movie. it's just. I don't, I'm with Kayla. I do not remember her being in this. Award Spady, but also like legitimately great film from 2005. Well, she's in Lost in Translation, but that's 2003. Mm -hmm. 2005 Awards Bait. But also, but, we all agree it's legitimately a good movie. Yeah. We? Yeah. 2000, is she a Brokeback Mountain? Yes, she yeah. is. I don't remember it at all, but she is. I'm looking at it and she's like credited all the way at the end. So what's her character name? Does she uh, LaShawn Malone? Malone. So she's just like someone hanging out. Oh my God. So yeah, I guess I have to watch Brokeback Mountain again. Okay. <laughs> I, wow. Our first time playing this, uh, I truly bombed. All right. I feel like that was a difficult one though. We're another get. I do feel good that that was a, that you think that was a difficult one because I also <laughs> felt like it was difficult doing it. Okay, Andrew, you pick next, and I'm sorry, Kayla, you get the leftover. Well, I'll do Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I said a much better chance with him. Okay, well, let's see. Okay. All right, we'll see. Internet. So Inception's gonna be on there. Correct. Um, well, again, the internet. So, The Dark Knight Rises. Mm -mm. No, no. Okay, he's not listed for Dark Knight Rising probably because he's a little bit down on the call sheet or the call sheet, uh, the uh, the credits, the credits. Yeah, the but but then we just had Anna Faris at Perfect Man, which I, I couldn't remember it's she was so in. Wild. <laughs> yeah, um, the rest of them are definitely like he's the top line. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like the rest of them are pretty easy, except one is not. When I there. forgot existed. Okay, I'm yeah. gonna guess 500 Days of Summer. No, which no. I'm surprised. Wild. No, it's pretty far. Like you have to, wow. you have to scroll for a while. Okay, now now this is getting tough. It's okay, I only have so, I only have one of four. So what are my years? So your years are 2011. 2012 and 2013. <laughs> Does that help you? One of them is Looper then. Yep, you got it. Okay. So now you've got 2013 and 2011. No TV. Okay. <laughs> so we, we yeah, that, that. that's actually surprising. This is a tough one. Can I get a hint? He directed one of them. I don't know. For these two that we have left, he has an affliction in both of them. Oh, 50-50. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And one more where he has an affliction? Uh-huh. Oof. 
his affliction is that he's horny. <laughs> it's Don John? It is Don, Don John. <laughs> that that is what, that's one of his most known roles, really? Yeah. I, I would say it is probably because he wrote and directed it. Like, his, oh, he gets okay. a bump because of that. Yeah, that's probably. Yeah, again, it's anyone's guess as to what the actual algorithm is, but <laughs> incredible. You did a great job with that. Um, all right, so that means Kayla, Aileen Woodley. Aileen Woodley, which I feel like this will be pretty easy because she was like in my like era. Right. There is one TV show in her credit for credits. Yeah, so that's probably. Well, I'm going to say Secret Life of the American Teenager. Nope. Uh-uh. Yeah. So, okay, if it's not Secret Life, then it's TV show. Probably Big Little Lies. Yes. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, the Fault in Our Stars is probably. Yes. Yeah. Okay. The Spectacular Now. Nope. Nope. No. All right. Let's give you some years. 2014. Oh, oh, um, Divergent. Yeah. 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 You're so good at this. And then 2021. A film I know exists only because of you. Oh, oh, yeah. Uh, The Last Letter from Your Lover. Yeah. Uh, what the heck? Uh, Why is that in I don't know. <laughs> I guess it's Netflix. You're tr- popular? You trounced us this this episode, Kayla. Uh, we should have given you, I don't know, one of the dudes from The Living End. Yeah, I was gonna, <laughs> I bet it's just The Living End listed deep, four times. Like the, yeah, just because, like, as I was growing up, she was just always, like, in everything. It's wild to me, like, that... The Descendants isn't on here. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's a forgotten movie. I honestly would have guessed The Fault of Our Stars and then the three direction movies. <laughs> like the, that that is a probably a good guess to have. Although I don't know, just after the first divergent, didn't it just kind of feel weird that other ones came out? Did anyone see those? Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, but, but I feel like the internet being again, like that's why maybe maybe pick the Nolan movies. The internet being the internet, like fandoms kind of i feel like boost must boost something on the imdb uh and that's why she's got big little eyes on there again oh yeah that's true oh and she's in the fallout too which oh yeah i forgot about that she's the psychiatrist yeah and and don't forget in 2021 she's also in the mauritanian oh yeah film i got 1000 emails about (laughs) and that's all i know about it it was nominated for an oscar wasn't it Jodie Foster wasn't nominated for an Oscar, but she did win the Golden Globe. That's what it was. Okay. Wow. Well, IMDb, the first website I ever visited because you can get down rabbit holes like this. I absolutely (laughs) love you and hate you. Very good. All right. So that was a lot of fun, but I think we should go ahead and close things out with one more thing. As we close out our first episode in the Queer 90s miniseries, we're going to give you one more thing. That's something that each of us have enjoyed over the past two weeks. Kayla, 
will you go first and then drop your socials for everyone to follow you? Yeah, so my one thing this week has been um, Crash, the new album by Charlie XCX. Um, highly acclaimed. She's been, she's put out the singles like all the way back in like September. And it's been forever. Yeah. So I'm happy that it's finally out in the world and we can enjoy it and listen to it. Um, and you can find me on Letterboxd. It's just my name, K-A-Y-L-A McCullough. And yeah. Bef I'm not going to let you get away easy. I want to know where it ranks in the Charlie discography for you. I think my number one is still how I'm feeling now. And I think that's just because like it was the most recent one and like I've had time with it, but I yeah. still, I mean, I still love pop too yeah. or like what it is. Maybe like my fourth pick right like ranking number four well, the fourth best charlie record is you know a great record so you you reviewed her her like covid lockdown zone like yeah. self-made little like about the creation of um i think it was the previous album right yes yeah and um, now. and that was a that was a great good review like it it convinced me that i need to watch the <laughs> despite not being like a huge charlie fan i yeah. thought i liked her until i met my boyfriend now and <laughs> then our you know, subsequent friend group and now i'm like can we all stop talking about charlie but i will say that kayla it makes me like charlie again <laughs> i love the way kayla loves charlie is how i love charlie the rest of them are all crazy about her um i had, all right. I had to i had to laugh because the Photos of her that went viral this week were her wearing a t-shirt that says they don't build statues to critics. <laughs> I, so like, am I allowed to be amused by something that's also denigrating me? <laughs> uh, I guess I wasn't. I tweeted that with an image of Roger Ebert's thumbs up statue in Campaign Urbana. Oh, because they do actually build critic scriptures, but whatever, Charlie, it's fine. You can be your crazy self. Okay, Andrew, what's one more thing and your social? Uh, my one more thing, thing I've been doing this week is uh, the new series, The Dropout on Hulu, which is about the true story, fictionalized version of the story of Theranos CEO Elizabeth Holmes uh, created. And uh, the showrunner is Elizabeth Merriweather from The New Girl. And I guess the director of the first couple of episodes is Michael Showalter, who is not a director I'm that crazy about. But um, mm. so far it's been really good i am not what i would call like a huge amanda seyfried stand like i wouldn't see a film just because she's in it um but she is killing it in this series she is awesome she, it's really striking a very good balance between um mimicry and sensitive portraiture and also sort of slightly like cartoonish supervillainy all at the same time somehow it's it's really working for me and they're on up to five episodes so far and the cast is just ridiculous like Stephen Fry is in it Naveen Andrews Elizabeth Marvel Laurie Metcalf um Bill Irwin William H Macy like the Jeez, cast is ridiculous it's ridiculous it? yeah it's ridiculously stacked class but Amanda Seyfried is just killing it in the lead role very good I'm excited to catch up with it um you can find me on Twitter at arachnophiliac and on letterbox at ay at 76. the one thing I've got for everyone is good fellas <laughs>
Uh, let me let me go back a bit. Uh, the Webster Film Series here in St. Louis has been doing a 90s on 35 millimeter series. And they started with Boogie Nights, which is my favorite of the films. And I did not get to see it. Um, as I understand it, it was a, a wild and very fun viewing. But I did get to see both Goodfellas and Fargo on 35 millimeter on a big screen. Ooh. Two films I've never seen theatrically and two films that I uh, appreciate and love. Um, I thought appropriately, but after seeing it, seeing both of them in an audience on the big screen, on film, on their intended format, I, I was just completely bowled over and it just reinvigorated, especially with Goodfellas, a film that I love and it hasn't ever been my top Scorsese and... I thought was maybe marginally overrated by people. I don't know. No, it is not. <laughs> it isn't. It isn't. I'm so stupid. I'm so stupid. That movie is special. Every second of it is just the most invigorating cinematic experience and is so smartly made and is about terrible men and the terrible things that they do and so incredibly morally complex in the filmmaking only buttresses those ideas and I just endorsed Goodfellas. Like, well, let's not be on this podcast. You endorsed Goodfellas on film. I did. I did. And so I endorse something you can't do anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I what do recommend, you? I do recommend that um, the new book, I new, it came out a couple of years ago by the New York Times critic, Glenn Kenny. He wrote a book length treatment of made men. Uh, call, uh, about Goodfellas called Made Men, and it's awesome. Very good. Maybe that's going to be my next recommendation when I read it, because I am all in. You can find me at Crispy Retinas on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram. And you can find all of us on the lens at cinemastlouis.org, where you can read our latest work. Thank you for joining us on our first episode in the Queer 90s series. Next week, we've got Ayla's Pig, which is the Wachowskis Bound, and I am so excited to talk about it. Probably going to be our longest episode yet because I won't shut up about it. <laughs> but thank you so much for joining us this week. And that's the way it crumbles. Cookie-wise. <laughs>